there. Welcome to Creation Station Monthly. I'm Bob from Creation Station. This is our monthly episode. So we're going to go longer and we're going to talk to two creative people about what makes them tick. What do they think about? How did they get into their job? Where are they doing this from? What makes them creative and how do they apply those talents into this current idea? This month, we're doing veteran services. And I know you're thinking, Bob, that's not really creative. That's more of a job that you do. And I'm going to show you two people are going to prove you wrong on this one. So my first is Scott Hope from the DAV. How are you doing today, Scott? Great, Bob. Thank you for uh, thanks for having me and uh, letting us talk a little bit about DAV today. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And the other is James Hayton. James from here in South Florida. How are you doing today, James? I'm doing very well, Robert. Thank you so much for having me today. Very, very excited for this. So, James, kick us off. Give us the, the the little nutshell thing about who you are and where you come from for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm James Heaton. I'm currently acting as the Senior Director of the United Way of Broward County's Mission United. I've been in my role as the Senior Director for about a year now, though I've been involved with Mission United for uh, close to seven years. Um, I actually grew up in Broward County, so I'm a, a local Broward guy. I uh, went to Broward Public Schools, big fan of Broward Public Library, uh, and, you know, very, very excited about uh, uh, talking with uh, with both of you today. And, you know, I'm an, actually an attorney by education and practice law, um, doing veterans uh, benefits and military law for about six years prior to jumping on board uh, with the United Way as this, uh, in my capacity as the senior director full time. What you, Scott? Give us, give us your nutshell. What's your bio? Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, Deputy National Service Director for Training is my title here with the Disabled American Veterans. I started in uh, 2007 with the DAV, so going on about 16 years uh, assisting veterans and filing claims and, and helping them through the VA process. So uh, very lucky to be able to do uh, what we do and, 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 you know, get to do it, you know, for the folks, you know, for veterans. Um, you know, very, very uh, lucky to have them and the caliber of folks that we work with. So, um, yeah, we have 63 national service offices across the United States, Puerto Rico, Hawaii. So uh, 250 individuals uh, approximately just making a huge impact for veterans and their families. So, you know, anything that we can uh, do or help with or point in the right direction, you know, we're more than happy to do so. That is excellent. And so, and just so everybody's aware, today is not necessarily going to be a thing of this is, these are services that are available in your area. This is more about why people are doing this, why these two individuals are here to help do this. And that's what I want to first talk, kick off, because James, you mentioned being a lawyer, and that doesn't necessarily scream out, I want to help veterans by being a lawyer. So tell us what got you into being a lawyer in the first place? How did that get started? Did you have someone in your family that said, you're going to go to school, young man? Or what happened with that? Absolutely not. I had none of that. So I'm the first uh, person to graduate college in my family, um, which I think is pretty interesting. Uh, and yeah. obviously, definitely the first person to go to law school. So when I was an undergraduate, I uh, was finishing up my degree in history, you know, something exciting and noble. And I was thinking about what I can do, where can I be useful in life, where can I give back to the community. And I had some friends at the time that were in law school that were pushing me to go to law school. They're like, I think you would like it. Uh, you should take the LSAT, try it out, see what happens. So I studied hard, took the LSAT, got a good grade, got into law school with a decent scholarship. 
and uh, started my adventure into figuring out how to make the world a slightly better place as an attorney, which, you know, I can tell you now is having a lot of friends who are still practicing law. Uh, not many people use their law degree to try and <laughs> to try and help people out uh, without having some sort of monetary incentive for themselves. How about you, Scott? Where where did you get started with thinking about it for veterans? Because you were, right? Correct. Yeah, I served in the Army from uh, 1997 until 2005. Uh, my initial you know, thought process was I was going to do my four years and get out and go use my GI Bill for uh, be a physician's assistant or a, a physical therapist. Um, but I ended up staying eight years. I did two tours to Iraq. Um, so, you know, the, the, the continuation of service and, um, you know, help, serving those who served was always, you know, part of, you know, who I was as a as a medic, you know, first of all, as a flight medic, and then, um, you, you know, getting out and continuing that service. I did, you know, have some some patients. I saw some injuries and it was, uh, well, okay, so they're going to make it, but now what? What's there now what? And, you know, being able to, you know, come out and be part of the assistance um, to, to get them back on their feet and, um, you know, helping them out. So it was a pretty natural transition from helping folks, you know, in, it, you know, it, while on ground in Iraq to uh, helping them, you know, while on ground back here in the great old United States of America. Nice, nice, nice. So I want to find out, tell, tell me a little bit more about that, Scott, about being active duty what did you do before being active duty? Was it always a military? Like for me personally, I had my father was army. I went to the Marine Corps. Um, it was it always something that was in your family, just natural or? Yes, it was. My grandfather was in the Navy. My father was in the army. My two brothers uh, are in, in the army as well, and I have a stepbrother who was in the Navy. So I mean, it was we pretty much got around a little bit. Um, he was the smart one. He stayed in for the full 20 years, retired, and, you know, is, is, really did uh, some some fantastic things. He actually works on the Firehawks um, out there in Colorado, the, the firefighting helicopters. So it's, it's interesting. My older brother was a medic. My younger brother was a crew chief in a Blackhawk, and I was a flight medic in a Blackhawk. So it all <laughs> kind of tied together a little bit there. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah, so uh, it, it was always in our blood to serve. Um, again, I, I had planned on doing 20 or getting out, but I fell right there in the middle of eight years and decided I'd, I'd you know, try my hat at something else. So very lucky. My, my younger brother is actually the one that got me interested in with the DAV. He had um, he had went to go help veterans himself. He got out before I did. Um, and they had said, well, DAV is looking for some folks. But, you, you know, he went and talked to them. And they said, you got to be able to move for DAV. And so he went, you know, he got home. He said, well, listen, my wife's pregnant with our first child. We just put a down payment on a house. I can't move. Um, but when I got out, I talked to him and um, yeah, it really worked out for me. They said, where do you want to go? I said, well, Utah or Arizona. And they said, how about Pittsburgh? And I said, okay. <laughs> so we're used to that kind of thing being, you know, military. So, okay. You know, you, you move for the opportunity. So I was very lucky, very fortunate. I got in at the right time with DAV. Tell us about that, James. How how did you, you, you mentioned you've been here in Broward County all of your life, but you had to have moved around a little bit for things. <laughs> I would like to tell you, Bob, that I've moved all over the world, but born and raised in South Florida, I went to undergraduate at FAU and I went to law school at FIU. So nice. I've never lived outside of South Florida. 
That's traveling. My, my wife and I have done some traveling in our day, but I've never lived. I've never had to shovel snow or you know drive. It's, my it's way overrated. No, no, no. I like the exact amount of snow that I have. Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so um, yeah, I've been been local my whole life. Uh, it was it was really I got a great opportunity when I was in law school to intern with the local legal aid program. And it was perfect. I knew that I wanted to, to use my powers for good at some point. So why not start with legal aid? And this was probably about uh, seven years ago now. And I was um, involved with their veterans advocacy program. And I'll you know, explain in more detail in a little bit if you want, but uh, we oh, yeah. had this great Just opportunity uh, to work directly with the VA to change some local procedure of what was happening. Uh, with veterans trying to access health care uh, at the local level, uh, which ended up turning into some national uh, changes. And it was just this amazing uh, snowball effect and windfall for all of our veterans locally, but also on a, a national scale as well. So uh, it was one of these things where, as an attorney, I learned that I had this at least perceived authority uh, where people like the director of your local Miami VA will actually sit down and invite you in to listen to you and hear what you have to say. And I found at that point that, wow, uh, this, this actually might work out for what I want to do, where having a law degree can really help me effectuate some change. How about th that leads me into one of the questions I always ask, um, and it's going to be different for both of you, I think, is what tools do you use to, to do, to be creative with? And I think you're leading us right there, James, with the idea of using the law degree or just the, the perceived thing. So fill us in a little bit more about that and, and what it was that you actually did. And Scott, just jump in with your ideas on what tools you think worked best, you've developed, I guess, over time as being part of this. Sure. So uh, what we were able to do is uh, we started noticing that there was an issue with veterans who had uh, other than honorable discharges specifically, um, mostly because of misconduct that was symptomatic of PTSD or TBI or some sort of mental health issue that developed while in service or was exacerbated by military service uh, that weren't getting treatment at the VA, though clearly their condition was directly related to uh, military service, whether it's combat exposure or, or not. Um, and we were able to push the, the local VA uh, director after several meetings and you know several briefings about uh, how the law should be applied, um, how it was intended to be implied. Uh, and eventually he agreed with us, started uh, um, pushing his local folks to get better training. Uh, that went to kind of a statewide thing where our uh, Florida Department of Veterans Affairs started picking up some notice on that. And then uh, there was a, a memo issued um, later that year, or I believe maybe 14, 16 months later, that um, that really got everyone else on the same page saying, hey, you guys need to start looking at this because there are a lot of veterans who are showing up to the uh, VA hospital with just their DD-214 in hand, and it might say other than honorable on it. And what the VA is supposed to be doing is taking a, a deeper look taking a, a deeper look at what what is the reason behind this other than honorable discharge um, and can we screen this person into healthcare? But unfortunately, what was happening all too often, and it's not the fault of, you know, the big VA, just uh, some some, you know, maybe some bad apples in the front end. Uh, people were were just being told no, just saying, hey, no, you're not eligible here. Sorry. 
And I'm still hearing once in a while that it happens around the country, but you know, it's gotten a whole lot better for, uh, for our guys and girls that are trying to get the service that they're entitled to from the VA. What about you, Scott? What tools are you using out there? Oh, well, we use uh, pretty much the same ones that James is using. Really, we use our legislators. We, we have a, a legislative team um, that uh, you know, goes and lobbies. Uh, you'll see DAV in the, in the background of the PACT Act signing. So we had lobbied and lobbied and John Stewart worked with my good friend Shane um, that, that is here in the building with me and, and, and it was finally passed. And James brings up a great point. We called it the VA turnaway problem, right? And, you know, being a veteran and having an honorable discharge, you know, a lot of folks at the VA are veterans themselves. And as soon as they see that OTH, they, you know, there, there's a bit of scrutiny and, you know, a kind of, well, this guy is not a, a veteran and frankly, he should have an honorable or she should have an honorable discharge. And if that's not the case that, you know, you got to go get that upgraded. We can't do anything for you when what should be determined is a character of discharge uh, determination rating, right? They need to immediately say, okay, well, listen, what happened here? Why would it, you know, why is this an OTH? Um, you know, did it, does it fall under the, you know, persistent and willful misconduct is, um, you know, the, the, that statute is pretty, you know, it's pretty technical when you start thinking about it. And the VA was just really saying no, and it happened a lot. And I'll tell you that a veteran has that kind of interaction immediately with the Department of Veterans Affairs. They're not coming back a lot of the time. So we really did a disservice to, 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 to veterans at that. Go ahead, James. I was just saying you're 100% right on that. I had a veteran. I'll never forget this guy. He uh, he got out in, in during peacetime. Um, it was mid-80s. I want to say 86, 87. And he went to the VA when he got out. Uh, he had an other than honorable discharge. Uh, you know, he goes, hold no. He never went back. He came to me in 2017. So we're talking 30 years later. Uh, where it wasn't even, we weren't even uh, discussing VA benefits, but you know, we were, we would do a holistic review about it for everybody. I'm looking over his uh, paperwork. I'm like, oh, so you're, are you getting your healthcare from the VA? He goes, no. I'm like, why not? So they told me I'm not eligible. Well, of course you're eligible. I'm like, you have two enlistment terms. I'm like, you have two separate enlistment terms. Uh, I'm like, all right, this is what you need to do. Today, leave my office, go down the street to the VA. I highlighted exactly what you need to explain to them. And call me when uh, when you get an answer. He calls me maybe an hour and a half later. He goes, James, he's like, I'm enrolled in VA healthcare. I'm like, yeah. it's, it's crazy how, uh, you know, just that slight guidance that uh, a little bit of help. Yeah, I mean, it, it does. And, and, you know, you don't want to be that, you know, that, that, that stigma of being a veteran who's repeatedly turned away and just told no. So it, it is frustrating on, on that end for sure. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, we have a, you know, our, our service officers go through a 16 month on the job training program uh, to, to become a national service officer. And then we have a 32 lesson plan structure to continue training after that. So, you know, one of the big lesson plans in there is um, discharges, discharge upgrades. And, you know, we work with a couple other nonprofits, the Veterans Consortium, um, they do a pretty good job pro bono stuff as well. For veterans who are in the exact same, you know, the PTSD, the military sexual traumas, the, you know, TBI that, you know, I was in a vehicle accident. It's not necessarily combat, right? There's a lot of stuff that goes on, you know, in the military training and, you know, it's a rough, tough job. So, you know, there's a lot of folks that really do get left by the, you know, left by the side of the road. So, um, yeah, we train our folks to be looking at all that stuff. You don't adjudicate, you know, the, the claims while they're sitting there with you or, you know, you take their word for it and you'll be surprised at, 
the wild stories that you'll hear, you know, like, oh, they, you know, did this to me, you know, I was part of this, you know, experiment, <laughs> okay, you know, and then sure enough, it comes out in the records like, wow, like they literally had to document it, right? Like you had to volunteer for it, but it's documented. So yeah, trust in the veteran, um, doing, you know, the best that you can for them. That's really, you know, very important is to this, what we always, that's what we train our folks to do is, you know, listen to the claimant, listen to the family member, um, and you know always do always do you know treat them as if they were your brother sister father mother that kind of thing and you won't go wrong so and scott, you, you leave again get you back to that in just one second james because I, I want you to follow up on that scott about the training idea because james is a lawyer not everybody's going to law school you didn't go to law school what kind of training did you have prior to showing up and so, then i want to hear from both of you about the non-trained people you work with, because it's not like you two are out there doing all of the work. You've got a lot of volunteers and other staff people. And what kind of training are they going through? And what, what would somebody who's interested in giving back like that look at? So our, our like I said, our 16-month our on-the-job training program uh, is very intense. It's, it's laid out week by week for the first four months. And then on the fifth month, that's when you also start doing our structured and continued training program. Um, so myself, you know, I had a high Who's school eligible for that program. Who's eligible comes. Is that something somebody could do right out of high school or is that really a college graduate thing? So in order to be a national service officer, you have to be, um, uh, eligible for vocational readiness and, um, employment through the VR and EVA. So that that's the prerequisite. So you do have to be a veteran, um, okay. to start, to, to start with, you know, to start with, but whether, you know, I, I, I was extremely lucky. I was a flight man, like I said, and, you know, but back when I was in, that was an EMT basic with, you know, post-traumatic, uh, uh, PTLS, post-trauma life support, you know, uh, basic trauma life support, uh, advanced cardiovascular life support. So it was basically a paramedic program, but the licensure was not there. So those things got changed up a little bit after I got out. It is now a paramedic course to go to uh, Fort Rucker from what I understand. Um, that wasn't the case. So whether you were infantry, whether you were a uh, cook, whether you're a truck driver, whether you're a flight medic, I mean, any of the, any of those individuals can come to the DAV, um, you know, and be trained as a national service officer if we, if we are hiring, right? We're always accepting applications, but, um, and once you start that program, like I said, the 32 lesson program is, is started in the fifth month of the on the job training. Um, that that 16 months is your foundation. Once you complete the structure to continue training program, those 32 lessons, uh, you will repeat it over and over your entire DAV career because the law changes everything, you know, it's organic. Um, and we can train, you know, we pride ourselves to be able to train anybody to be able to be the, the, what our technical term is, is attorney. In fact, we get to, you know, practice law before administrative law judges, um, you know, for the Department of Veterans Affairs. So we get to do hearings. Uh, we get to advocate on behalf. We get to write what we call independent hearing presentations, IHPs, which is a written legal argument that's looked at by the Board of Veterans Appeals. So uh, there is a lot um, that goes into just becoming a national service officer. And once you complete the 32 lesson plan uh, uh, structure to continue training, it takes about three years, but we do work with the American Council on Education. And that training um, from start to finish, if you complete it all successfully, is worth 15 credit hours with them for administrative law, um, for uh, anatomy, physiology, medical terminology, those kind of things. Um, and our training program is 100% online. We call it ITRAC, Interactive Training Research Advocacy and Knowledge. Um, and, you know, it's unbelievable the way we've been able 
to leverage that because what we'll also do is leverage the videos on YouTube, right? Scott could sit down and make a video about the alveoli in the, in the lungs, but it would be terrible. And there's professionals out there, John Hopkins, that have it down. So uh, we get to leverage that. Um, we work with the Illumin Group to, to uh, make, make the training. The training program itself, you know, we have 3D interactive uh, charts. We have, you know, where you can take away, see deep tissue stuff. I mean, it's, it is very, very cool. It's a, it's, it's the envy of all service organizations, uh, our training program. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit uh, uh, arrogant and maybe, um, you know, oh, it's good here. Yeah. <laughs> Be proud but of all I, the stuff you can do. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the, the, the training program started in 1944. So DAV's had a training program all the way back to 1944. We started with 10 classes of, of 24 weeks to train our first class until we had about 400 service officers. Um, obviously, you know, we have we have adapted and changed. I, I have a, a a magazine cover from 1987 and it shows it says the best get better. And it's a uh, it's a DOS computer, floppy disks, uh, cassettes, VHSs, right? And, you know, a flip chart of anatomy. Yeah. And, that and now was, we're up to using virtual reality to uh, that was out. cutting yeah. edge, <laughs> right? That yeah. was cutting edge for the time. Um, and, you know, and then we moved to a paper-based system where it was, you know, the, the same lessons, all that kind of thing, you know, you, you would handwrite all the answers. So that was all the way up in 2000, until 2015, when we went to the online, um, the, the iTrack system. And, you know, we've just been able to do so much more and, and train folks so much easier and have it as a research tool. Um, you know, it's not just so we can, you know, put into the search engine of the Board of Veterans Appeals. Um, favorable outcomes, DAV represented clients, and, you know, look for these keywords and it will pull up, you know, thousands of, of decisions that meet that criteria. So, I mean, we've leveraged a lot of stuff when it comes to that and made made uh, the studying quite a bit easier. No more hand cramps for, for our new folks. So, <laughs> you know. How about you, James? T tell us about that, uh, bringing those people in and for the education side of things, sure. the, the other people working with you that aren't lawyers. Yeah. How do they get in there and how do they get involved? So there's kind of two tracks that I'll discuss. And one, we'll start with the non-lawyer track. And we heavily rely on our veteran service officers. So uh, just everything that Scott was saying, we rely on both national uh, VSOs and, and county VSOs and statewide VSOs uh, to really help when it comes to uh, for our case management staff and our employment staff and our education staff when they're interfacing with uh, other veterans to make sure that all of their benefits needs are being met and that any barriers to uh, either accessing VA healthcare or VA benefits uh, can be addressed. So it's, um, it's heavily, heavily relied on. We outsource almost all of it at this point because uh, as, as Scott just mentioned, it's a, it's a pretty high bar for training uh, for the, uh, the, the VSOs and uh, what better resource? There's, you know, there's no point of us re, uh, reinventing the wheel here and having our own uh, uh, VSO program. Um, we're fortunate enough to have in our, our building uh, veteran service officers, county veteran service officers that uh, spend a portion of their time uh, on site. So veterans that come in to get services from us, whether it's through our supportive services for veteran families or homeless veterans reintegration program or shallow subsidies or grant them per diem, uh, they can meet with a VSO as part of that, uh, as part of that case management packet. So it's uh, we we definitely 
uh, rely heavily on the VSOs, folks like Scott and his team, uh, to uh, to screen the vets. Now, we also stand up a legal program, which this is, I, I ran in the legal program at Legal Aid uh, for, uh, for veterans for six years, which had a, a large pro bono project. Um, and one of the most difficult things to do are to find attorneys who know what they're talking about when it comes to VA benefits. So I kind of, what I decided to do uh, in 2016, I joined the American Bar Association's Commission on Homelessness and Poverty and immediately started linking up with other attorneys who were worth a damn uh, doing VA benefits and learn from the best. Uh, from there, uh, just doing the work every single day, working closely with the VSOs, um, working with other national programs, uh, the Veterans Consortium, huge, uh, huge partner of ours. Um, and then what we started doing is realizing, hey, why doesn't, why don't more law schools teach this stuff? I didn't learn in law school. I had to get a hands-on experience. There's no, there wasn't a class on VA benefits or veterans law at the time. Uh, so we started developing one uh, locally in South Florida. We worked with a local law school. We uh, welcomed summer interns in and, you know, as many that wanted to come and we taught them the law and we let them handle cases all the way up to, uh, as Scott was saying, up to the Board of Veterans Appeals. Um, COVID was fortunately one of the things that worked really well for us as all the hearings moved on to WebEx and we were able to take law students from across the country who are interested in learning this stuff and have them sit on these BVA hearings with us. It's wonderful. Um, working with the Veterans Consortium, they got to work on legal briefs for federal, legal, at the federal level in front of the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. That's something that law students don't get to do too often. So uh, one, of, one of the needs, as I said, that we saw was the lack of training and lack of education for attorneys coming up the system who want to learn this law um, so they don't become these uh, fly by night, let me hook up with a, doc, uh, a doctor who's not too scrupulous to get uh, some claims pushed through type of attorney into being someone who can actually make a difference in the life, life of these veterans. Um, I'm actually, I just got the opportunity, uh, I found out about it earlier and got the, the green light uh, yesterday that we're going to re relaunch the uh, Veterans Law Clinic at Nova Southeastern University here, which will nice. allow us to train uh, the next wave of, uh, of young attorneys coming through on how to handle uh, these types of cases and do it the right way and do it with compassion, which I was going to mention, that's one of the tools uh, that Scott was yeah. talking. One of the tools that we use that uh, we, we, I think we all use is compassion uh, to, you know, be able to, to make sure that we're, we're addressing the veteran as a, a human being and as a whole person and that we're able to remove these barriers. So this is the, the question that I always ask of um, successes and failures. Tell me what is your favorite success that you've been able to achieve in yeah. being able to help or do someone? Um, I would say that being able to be the, you know, one of the chief trainers for the organization and make an impact with that many and national service officers. And, and, and in addition to our national service officers, like I said, we have 255 across the nation. Uh, we also have transition service officers. They cover 100 military bases. And, um, you know, there's 30 of them that cover that, right? So, you know, when I got out, probably when you got out, it was, uh, okay, you're getting out, like, later, skater. Um, and there was, so now we, you know, have somebody sit down with a veteran and say, okay, well, listen, these, you know, just because you broke your ankle playing basketball, not in Iraq, doesn't mean we don't claim it. So there's somebody there giving them very good advice and being able to put together programs 
that teach those 250, you know, NSOs and those 30 TSOs on, you know, to, to advocate on behalf of veterans and their families is just, you know, the best feeling in the world. I would have to say that that, um, that, that would be the greatest accomplishment, I think, that I, I, I uh, up to date is, um, you know, our ITRAC system and we're, you know, all we, we're in the middle of our fourth build, uh, we're going to build out uh, five to include our chapter and department service officers because those individuals are at the local level, like James says. Um, you know, we have just over um, 2,500. Um, you know, when, when we include the county veteran service officers uh, who are accredited with DAV, the National uh, NACVSO, National Academy of County Veteran Service Officers, they're part of that program. They can be cross accredited with DAV and get access to our claimants. Um, so we'd cross streams there. And then, um, you know, we'll be able to train those folks and they'll have access to the the information, the, the service officers guide and I track just like our national service officers and our transition service officers do. So I, I'm part of that build. Uh, my very good friend Justin Hart is also building at, out with me. We, we're the ones to take care of that, and you know, just making that huge impact. Um, it is just a, it, it is, you know, one of the the the, the highlights of my career so far. Hopefully, I, I have a few more. <laughs> Only it's, just, it's so funny listening, Scott. It's just you run through the acronyms. You're just like, yeah, you were definitely in the service. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, it's but, hilarious. You know. No, it's great. No, I, I, everybody I think understands it. And if they don't, they're going to go hit the website and they're going to figure out. James, tell us what, what's your what's your good success. So I think the reputation that we built for our local legal project as being the the, the source for taking the cases where veterans have been told no hundreds of times where someone comes to us and they say, well, you know, I don't think this is going to work because I've been told no so many times. Uh, so really being able to do a deeper dive and looking into these cases. And then, you know, some of the, sometimes there is no case there. Sometimes there's, there's really the facts don't line up. And you just have to be able to explain uh, honestly to, to, uh, to some of your clients that, hey, you know, this might not work out, maybe it will. But one of the things that we were, we've been really successful on is uh, through that program really garnering local community resources. So as you all probably know, the United Way is really big at bringing together community partners. So we work very closely with our local uh, VA healthcare center. Uh, it's based out of Miami that oversees Broward County as well, uh, the local library. But we also work closely with uh, Henderson Behavioral Health, which, is, which helps um, do individual and group therapy for veterans who may not want to use uh, the VA. Uh, we work closely with our uh, consolidated credit, which is able to do uh, no cost to the veteran, full uh, budgeting and, and assessments. Uh, and also on the federal level with the Department of Labor and the Department of Veterans Affairs. So just being able to say that our program doesn't do it alone, that we're really you know, it takes a village and we're, we're really able to pull in these, these juggernauts uh, to help make an impact on each individual and, and their families that, uh, that come through our doors, uh, just the, the greatest success. I'm, I'm happy to share individual case successes because I've got like three stories on the top of my head that I just don't know how we got these things granted, but uh, <laughs> this. I've heard some of the stories from you on the continuum stuff. So, yeah, I, I know you've got some really good successes there, James. Uh, what do you guys think the rest of society outside of veterans thinks about this? 
And, and in particular, one of the reasons it occurred to me to – I was going to toss this question out because it's not a normal one for this kind of conversation. But then it was like, wait a minute. You know, we're making kind of a big deal about it because it's November. You guys do this 365. So what do you think out there is the is the perception or how do we you know, adjust that idea out there for the people putting in the work like you guys are? I think – for the most part in the United States now, we've we've grown to an appreciation of veterans and stuff. But for what you're doing, what do you think people – how do you people think about it? I don't want to – we're not going to tell you, James, what we think of lawyers, but <laughs> – I'll tell you what I think of lawyers. Um, so the <laughs> – I'll tell you, uh, one of the, the, the crazy things that I, I realized early on was that and, – and coming from a complete civilian perspective – is that uh, the perception of veterans is really generational. So you look back, World War II vets, you think hero, you think, you know, savior of the world. And then you, you shift over to Korea and people are like, wait, there was a Korean War? I, I don't remember that. And then Vietnam, and you start looking at ne negative connotations of, of those folks coming back from Vietnam. And then you had some peacetime and the Gulf War. And then we started seeing, you know, my, my friends, a lot of good friends that I have uh, growing up, uh, post 9-11 vets, that uh, come back and there's a perception that these folks are broken in some way, uh, that they're that they're damaged from the war and it's uh, and that there there needs to be some level of charity around them, and I think that is one of the things where we're trying to remove all of these stigmas from uh, from military service and show you know uh, a lot of we do this because we care for those folks that served our country we don't do this because they they need a, a handout. Uh, I, I think that's one of the most important things that we really try to, uh, to to bake into the services that we provide is, you know, you're not coming here and, and you know, our, our team is mostly veterans. Uh, you're not coming here as a veteran because, you know, you're, you're needy or you're, you're broken in some way. Uh, you're coming here because, you know, you're going to be around other veterans and you're going to do this. You're going to get the, the assistance. You're going to get the hand up and not the hand out. Uh, that's really going to help you know get you on the straight and narrow. So that, that's personally for me what I think uh, one of the the biggest uh, things that I would like to get across to the non-veteran community. No, I think that's a lot of great great points, James. And I would you know I'll add to that and say um, a lot of times veterans don't know the difference. Even veterans don't know the difference between DAV and the VA. Right? They will be they'll call and yell at us and tell us we did this and that because. We're answering the phone when they call, right? Um, we're, we, you know, it's very difficult sometimes to get a hold of the VA, and it's very difficult to get somebody at the VA that really knows veterans, you know, benefits. Um, you know, we're, so what? What I would like to do is be able to, you know, um, make DAV more public, you know, better outreach, you know, you know, better primetime spots on the television to let veterans know that DAV is not the VA. Um, you know, you do not have to be a member. Of the DAV to receive our services, uh, we do a lot more than just veterans advocacy and benefits. Uh, you know, we have a we have a transportation network to help you get to and from VA appointments. We have you know an employment program. We work very closely with recruit military. We have our legislative program that um, you know is also extremely important for what we do. So we're not and, and you know. A lot of times veterans think about a veteran service organization and, and they think, you know, the local VFW hall beers and, you know, camaraderie and story sharing. Uh, and that's just not the that that's not the end of, of, of what DAV does. We definitely have our camaraderie, but 
um, us being able to, to, to get out there a little bit more, leverage social media, and let folks know the DAV is, you know, a lot more than just a, 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 a hey, maybe we can, you know, file your, your, your benefits or, or um, you know, just working with a, a person, you know, the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs is what I'd say compartmentalized. Um, you know, their silos, they have the vocational readiness and employment, and then they have their Veterans Benefits Administration, and they have the, um, you know, the Veterans Hospital Administration, and our national service officers are very, very good at knowing all of those programs. When you call it Veterans Health Administration, you're going to get somebody that knows how to make an appointment. They're not going to be able to assist you with, you know, um, filing a claim. Right, and our, our folks are able to do all that. And I think that, you know, just getting it out there that, hey, that we are really, um, you know, there for the veteran, we're on their side, we're their advocates, and we're not the Veterans Administration. I would really like to stop um, getting those two conflated because we, it's a non-adversarial process on, on the books, but it's definitely a, an argument between DAV and VA a lot of the time on what, what a veteran's earned. So I, 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 that's what I would say is, you know, become, I wish that everyone was as familiar with DAV um, as I am, but that probably will never happen. <laughs> you've got the, you got the years of experience on this one on so many people. Um, how, and speaking of years of experience, and you guys have both t sort of touched on it, but I want you to really explain it for yourself from your own personal idea now. What changed over the last years, James, you started to, to you know, talk about changing how people viewed veterans, but in your own time doing this, what's changed in how you've had to work in the field, how, you know, coming up with new ideas, new, new solutions, you know, Scott, you had mentioned, you know, doing more of the video stuff and going online and James, you were talking about WebEx. What are some of the things that you feel like this is something that anyone coming into the field is going to start on second base where you guys built up to that. I'll say personally for me, the saturation in this area of veterans assistance has changed a lot uh, for good and for not so good. So for the good, obviously having more resources is always a, you know, a useful thing. However, being able to vet those resources can be daunting. And, uh, you know, coming out of the military, as, as you guys know, uh, going through TAPS and just being like, get me the hell out of here so I can continue my life as a civilian. I'm going to remember yeah. TAPS. I, I was like, was that like a thing? I know I did it. I, I know I have a piece of paper that says I did it, but I'm like, seriously, really? What? I, this was like two hours. Come on now, people. We, we just recently uh, got involved in the South Florida TAPS program. So we're, we're running a section of TAPS now. And it's been very helpful because we actually bring on resources and, you know, uh, facilitate networking connections. But anyway, uh, yeah, you know, navigating all the resources is difficult. So having more resources can make navigating more difficult, figuring out what are, what's real, what's not real, what's fly by night, what's going to, what's here to last and here to actually help um, can be very, very daunting. And that was... Uh, the whole reason why Mission United was established was to really help veterans navigate those resources. So it makes the it makes it it's both a positive and a negative because as more resources come in, you know, the more uh, nuanced things that can be done, um, but the the more difficult it can be to navigate through uh, what's available and what's real. 
Tell me, Scott, what, what, what have you grown into and, and built to make it feel like the next person's going to have it a little bit easier? So uh, what we do, obviously, we have an internal case management system that tracks our veterans, right? And we were able to build that out as an organization specific to our needs. Uh, I was part of that build. So we did change that up a little bit. Um, you know, if somebody contact us on our uh, NSO locator, it's at DAV.org. Um, if you go to our locator, you put in the zip code, you can send an email directly to the National Service Office closest to you. Um, so when we build out the system this time, you know, that builds a profile and it checks the system to see, make sure we're not having a duplicate uh, claimant. So, you know, we've kind of transitioned from, you know, less input, um, you know, more, more automation in that, in that area. I would also say that the, the transition that the Appeals Modernization Act played as an organization, because that's really a misnomer, it, the Appeals Modernization Act changed the whole claims process. Um, so it really does change on a dime anymore where, hey, you know, this this form is needed with that form and just being having to learn and teach those those nuances to the, the, the folks that are out there on the ground doing it. Um, we definitely had to change gears, put out information, become more communicative um, with our folks. And, you know, the, the, the pandemic also opened a lot of opportunities for us when we um we're basically said listen two weeks to slow the spread turn into 18 months right um you know we had we had we had stood up a, a 8800 number 888 number the veterans could still contact our national service officers um we could answer questions we could take their calls we could still conduct training uh we started uh, actually we ended up with zoom instead of webex but um you know we had our star leaf going we were doing you know um video calls uh we you know we were able to um like uh, James said, hold hearings with veterans law judges and veterans while they're in their home. Um, you know, so it really, you know, that transition of making those things happen is going is a much easier process now, I think, for the next generation coming because, you know, all those are, are now in place, right? The 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 ability to to get into veterans' homes and and do those uh, you know, telemedicine and do the, the hearings and stuff. I mean, this this going to be the way it is um, when veterans from other generations and our folks come in. So, but standing that up in COVID just really um, tested the flexibility of of us, you know, especially with the the, the we're, we're a centralized organization. We're very lucky um, that the DAV is structured as a national organization, and all those 255 folks, you know, go through the same training and have it uh, maybe a slightly but uh, a chain of command is the same and. You know, other, you know, VFW is a state organization, right? And they do things a little bit different in Florida than they do in California. So DAV's lucky in that. We so so you know, being able to to communicate, um, standing those things up, and you know, being successful in that transition, um, it's just going to be the way things are done now. And I think that's probably the the biggest takeaway of you know, like you said, starting on second base rather than you know doing the bunt and trying to get the first. <laughs> So I got one more question. We've we've flown through almost a whole hour already. So I want I want to, I want to get one question in that I always ask is when you were a kid, what were you doing that was creative? Was it you were an artist? Were you playing in mud puddles? Were you dancing? Were you singing? What was it that you were being creative at that somebody either helped and said, "Hey, we need to channel this energy," or you just kind of figured out on your own that you're going to do something else? Really interesting. Uh, it's a great question. And I was the kid who would always bounce between different things. So I did 
karate for a few years and I played soccer and then I picked up guitar because I thought it'd be cool to uh, do it with my friends and impress girls. Uh, and then I just became a huge nerd. I played, you know, like D&D and Magic the Gathering for a while. Uh, we still play D&D. Come on now. Nice. So I still play Magic the Gathering. And, uh, <laughs> and it really just became uh, from there, I, I ended up bouncing around so many different social circles and communities that I just realized I really like doing this. I really enjoy being around a diverse groups of people. Um, especially growing up in public school here in South Florida, there's so much diversity uh, that I just, looking back at it, I've ha I still have friends today from all those uh, different uh, different walks and uh, such a diverse group. And I, I, it made me realize that uh, this is this is one of the most beautiful things about uh, being able to, being in a position to help people and being in a position to serve the community is just like, enjoying take finding the joy in it and enjoying the uh the, the social aspects and meeting new people and being able to connect with them and and uh and find a way to to really help them so i i didn't realize it at the time but all of that really culminated into uh to what i do today how about you scott what did you do uh well i didn't have for a some lot reason of... i'm picturing you on dirt bikes i don't know <laughs> I, well i was gonna say we we didn't we didn't have the uh the means to do a whole lot of extracurricular activity. My older brother uh, was given the clarinet for about two weeks, and that went straight back. It, no, no more instruments for any of us. Uh, we played outside a lot, um, and I would just say that it was always, you know, it was riding your bike or or playing basketball. I would much rather play the sport than watch it on TV. Um, and I guess that just, you know, just being, just moving and. And, um, you know, being active, I guess I was, I had a lot of energy and I wasn't allowed in the house a whole lot. So, um, <laughs> definitely, uh, <laughs> definitely just uh, being a kid and, and, and playing outside, whether it was GI Joe's in the dirt or the sandbox or swinging on a swing set somewhere. I mean, it was all, always moving. And I think that that's, you know, served me well as well, you know, just always being busy, ready to get stuff done and working to standard, not to time. And I think that that just, uh, you know, I think it does go back and. You know, it's, it's amazing now that you asked that question, <laughs> looking back, you know, yeah. not a lot has changed. My wife still doesn't want me in the house half the time. So <laughs> pretty busy chop of wood or something. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's kind of the whole thing. It, you get loud and you just kind of stay that way for a few decades. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, so the last thing is equipment. Um, what is your dream piece of gear that you want to be able to help and do in the future? Because you know, I'm all about the you know using virtual reality or augmented reality to do trainings and stuff like that. But you guys may very well have something totally different that you want. What's, what's your ideal future? Go pluck this with any limitless money to build and develop. Tell me. <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm building it, actually. I mean, that's what we're doing, honestly. We're, you know, I mean, you know, there's nothing off the shelf that exists to do what we do um, better than what I think that we have. And, you know, we're building that future. We're, we're, we are leveraging the technology. You know, the code gets better every time we do a build and things change. So, I mean, hopefully in, you know, five years, we'll be able to pluck that perfect system out. It'll still be, you know, organic and growing, but, um, you know, you just, just, being able to uh, being able to build it the way we want it is the most important part. So, uh, I would that's what I would say is as far as perfect piece of equipment, um, it'll it'll be always be changing. So I think we're building it for the future. That's that's all I have. I'm going nice. to be more ambitious than you, Scott. Uh, I'm going to say that plus 
So yeah, if I could wave a magic wand over everything, having some sort of referral and case management software that also tracked records and uh, integrated with court systems and VA records and national archives and just to make everything and everything as easy as possible because one of the most difficult things that happens uh, in these grassroots programs is uh, we have to follow the rules that are implemented by our grantors. So the Department of Veterans Affairs through SSVF says that we have to keep X, Y, and Z documents. Well, you're coming across a client, a veteran who's in crisis, they may have X and Y documents, but it's really difficult for them right now to get that Z document, that last document. And so now the case manager is spending more time than necessary helping the, the veteran get those documents when you know they exist somewhere and they should be readily accessible. Uh, and it's really taking away from time that can be used to resolve uh, barriers and, and crises and address these things. So um, having one integrated system that everyone got along with and agreed upon and said, yes, we're using this, we're committed to using this, and it's useful and we're able to get all the things that we need on it uh, in a click of a button and track everyone. And that's just now sounding pretty dystopian. Uh, <laughs> that's a, it, 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 it's a good tool. And that's yes. one of those that's one of those key things, you know, I talk about on, on my regular weekly show. These are great tools. It's how you use the tool. It's how you mm -hmm. apply it and who's in charge of applying it that creates our problems in the world sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, that that is really the, the goal. Um so I, I've got the United Way and the DAV websites I've put up for both of you. Um, these are going to be in the show notes, people. So if you are intrigued by any of the stuff you heard or if you know someone in the family or friends who is a veteran and needs help, um, in the show notes, there's a direct links to both of their sites. Thank you, James. Thank you, Scott, for being here this month and talking about this kind of stuff. I hope it opened up some people's eyes that it's it's not just an office job, that it, that there's some actual creativity going on and how everybody's working and building this stuff. And I'm going to throw up our final slide here. As always, if that you'd like to get any other information, creationstation at Broward.org comes right to us. Thank you all very much for being here today. And we'll see you soon. Thank you.